0: Okay, we have uh, limited time in this one service. It happens once a year. We have our annual meeting uh, right after the service, which means this, uh, we have to be done on time. And that is pressure on me, okay? You all along for the ride. This is pressure on me. And so uh, I'm going to try to be as uh, expeditious as possible with our, with our message today. I began last week by asking you the question, how many of you have ever failed God? And I think, I hope all of us, in an honest assessment, recognize that we fail uh, God to some degree or another every single day. And then I said, okay, how about a major failure of God? How about a colossal failure of God? And I would have to think that as I asked that question, many thought about a major failure in the past that maybe to this day represents deep regret and remorse for what you did, what we did. And last week, therefore, we talked about the biggest failure in the history of the church, The greatest failure ever to be done to Jesus was done by the last person that you would expect uh, to do so. His name is Peter. Peter was named Peter by Jesus, and his name ironically means the rock. And we see in his failure that he in no way lived up to his name. This character named Peter. And we looked at one, at one part of the story, which is the, the, the epicenter of his failure. And it happened the night that Christ was arrested and taken to Annas' house. And Peter and John followed behind and ended up inside the courtyard, just outside of the house where Jesus was being beaten and interrogated. And Peter was asked if he was a disciple of Christ by a servant girl, by a a small group of men around the fire and by the relative of a guy that he happened to have just cut off his ear, which sounds sort of almost funny in the story, but that's exactly what happened. And in each one of those cases, in spite of the fact that just hours before in the upper room, he had said that he would never, ever fail Jesus and that he would lay down his life for him. He denied that he even knew the man. This was the great failure and the defining moment in Peter's life. I think if you were to ask him today, what was the moment that changed everything for you? He would do this, right? When the rooster crowed, as Jesus had predicted, Matthew 26 says, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly and that's where we left it and we talked about that the 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 sharp contrast between peter in the courtyard and jesus in the house and i tried to emphasize that if you read that story and you leave somehow inspired to be like jesus you have missed the point although that's a good sermon from another passage you've missed the point of this one it is not that we should try to be courageous like jesus the point is is that we are peter in the courtyard and that story highlights the great, uh, the, the great contrast between human weakness and failure and divine strength and glory. One is in the courtyard denying and lying and deceiving, and there's one in the house who is faithful and true, obedient even to the point of death. Peter's failure highlights Christ's glory and his beauty. And that's where we left it. Now, what happens from here in the story is well known. Jesus is sent to Caiaphas' house. He eventually makes his way to the Roman governor, Pilate, where the accusations are brought against him. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him exactly. He begins to uh, question him, trying to figure out what to do. Long story short, he takes him before the crowds there in Jerusalem, and they cry out, crucify him. Pilate, uh, feeling the political pressure, consents to that, has him flogged, Jesus carries then, flogged almost to the point of death, carries his cross outside the city to a hill called Golgotha, they affix him to a cross with nails, they hang him between two thieves, and at three o'clock on that Friday, he cried out, it is finished, and he gave his life. And the Bible says that during that time, God the Father treated him as if he had committed the sins of the world. So that he was bearing the guilt, he was bearing psychologically the pain of what it means to be the rapist and the murderer and the adulterer and every sin that you and I have committed. He gave his life. Well, seeing him die in that moment, the Bible relates several people. Mary Magdalene was there. Mary, his mother, was there. When he died, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came and took down his body and buried him. We know that the apostle John was there and no doubt others. Now, why do I go through the list of people that were there when Jesus died? Let me do it again. Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, John, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, other women who supported him. In other words, his inner circle is there. Those that really support him and love him, he's there. But wait a second, who's missing? Who is? Who who would you expect if there is anybody that's going to be there in Jesus' darkest hour when he gives his life? You would expect that his right-hand man would be there, right? The guy that he named The Rock. The guy whose name is at the head of every list of disciples in the Bible. The guy that was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at beside him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where's Peter in the story? And I say that to you, friends, because we see how complete Peter's failure is, not just in the courtyard, but also at the cross. He isn't there. There is no mention of Peter from the moment that he denied Christ in the courtyard until after his resurrection. And I want you to realize that because the big point that I'm going to get to today is if Peter can be restored, then so can you. If Peter can be restored, then so can you. Because no matter how bad your failure is, I guarantee you have not failed in the same degree or way that Peter did the Lord in that unique circumstance, which represents the greatest, most horrible failure of all time. Now, our passage today is John 21, and you can turn there, beginning in verse 15, and here's how the narrative flows Jesus is crucified. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus bury him, along with a few others. Roll the stone in front of the, of the tomb Friday night. Sunday morning, at first light, some of the women go. There's an earthquake. And the stone is rolled away. Angels appear and say, why, why are you looking for the living among, uh, 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 the dead amongst the living? He is risen just as he said. And if you know the story, they go rushing to, the, to where the uh, disciples had gathered. And they say, somebody has taken his body. And John records that two disciples run to the tomb. Who were they? John and Peter. That's right john and peter run to the tomb to see what's going on that's the first mention of peter since the courtyard so jesus has been resurrected he appears to them in the upper room he and this begins a series of of physical appearances of the resurrected christ to the disciples and others first corinthians 15 says uh, 500 at least so we pick up the story now the the disciples have been out fishing what, every, what, every, what, what all men do when, when when, they got some free time is they, they went fishing. There was no humor in that, was there? <laughs> Apparently, we don't have any fishermen here because they're oh, that's right, I'm one of them. Anyway, uh, they are out fishing, and Jesus appears to them on the shoreline, and you, maybe you know the story. He says, hey, why don't you fish off the other side of the boat? They haven't caught nothing. And... Uh, And they do, and the fish just are leaping into the net, and they realize this is a miracle, and they say, it's Jesus. And Peter uh, throws off his, his, his outer garments and jumps in and swims to shore. And the other disciples come, gather the fish in with the nets on the shore. They get there, and Jesus has a prepared breakfast for them. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? All right, now let's understand the setting here. The disciples are sitting in a circle. Hmm. When was the last time Peter saw this? Students? Last supper in the upper room. That's right. Ironically, it says it was a charcoal fire. We've heard of a charcoal fire recently in the story. Where was there a charcoal fire? In the courtyard where they were warming themselves. John says it was a charcoal fire. I wonder if Peter's sitting there and he's just having one of these deja vu moments. Here's Jesus. Their disciples are sitting in a courtyard or in a, in a circle. Uh, how did it go in the upper room for Peter? Not good. Not good. Charcoal fire. When was the last time Peter saw a charcoal fire? In the courtyard. How'd it go for Peter in the courtyard? Not good. Not good. Perhaps a deja vu moment for him. And now Jesus, in front of the other disciples, says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, who are the these? This is important. Who are the these? And there is a little bit of debate, but I believe that the these here are the other disciples who are sitting there. You can see them, can't you? Do you you love me more than these? In other words, is your love for me greater than the love that these men have for me? Now, what is Jesus doing here? And this is so critical to get this. What is he doing here? Remember, in the upper room... What was Peter all too willing to do as it relates to his love and devotion to Jesus? He wanted to compare it, didn't he? Remember he said, all these others may fail you, but I and I alone, Peter the Great, shall never fail you. That was old Peter, wasn't it? And Jesus now throws him a, or tease it up. I mean, he, 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 he tees him up with a question. He puts the, the big ball on the tee, gives him a great big bat, and says, Okay, Peter, what are you going to do this time? Because now Peter has the opportunity to show whether or not he's still the old Peter or maybe something different has happened in his life. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, Jesus, said to him, Feed my lambs. Now notice class, does Peter answer Jesus question? Yes and no, right? Does he answer the question whether or not he lo- his love and devotion is more than the love and the devotion that the other disciples have? No, he doesn't. Again, what do we see here? Something's changed. Peter's not the same guy. Before, he would have been like, well, I'd be happy to uh, evaluate it, and I would give myself and my love and devotion for you. And A, and these others, I would put somewhere in the C to C minus range. I am better than them. He doesn't do it here, though, does he? And we need to ask the question, what has changed? Why is Peter different? And I will tell you what has happened Listen, everybody, I want your attention. Failure happened. Brokenness happened. And failure and brokenness in Peter's life has borne its good fruit. And he is not the same guy that he was. Now, Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And here now comes the grace and I, I this this could be I don't know if God will bless it to your heart I don't know I never know week after week, but this could be one of the richest truths that I'll be able to share with you as your pastor. What does Jesus do in this moment? He says, "Feed my lambs." Now let's think about that a second. Who are the sheep? He also calls them sheep here. Who are the sheep? Who are the lambs? What is he referring to? I had somebody after service last night. I didn't make this clear because they came to me and said, Now, is he talking about like real sheep there? Or what's he talking about? Will you you take care of my flocks of sheep when I've gone to heaven? No. Like in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He is talking about his people, right? He's talking about, I would say, the church. Christians. And he says, Peter... From now on, your responsibility is to feed my sheep. Now, who is responsible for feeding of sheep? We call them what? Shepherds. And so what Jesus is doing implicitly here is he is saying, Peter, from now on, you are a shepherd again. You are a leader again. What Jesus is doing is he is reinstating the failed Peter back to his his place of leadership within the disciples and ultimately within the church. And I just, you know, I so want to communicate this point. He failed Christ in his darkest hour. And yet Jesus restores him fully. Not just to, okay, uh, you can be in the group, but you're never going to be a leader again here. Look at what you've done. Not simply to... Uh, uh, status within the disciples. He restores Peter. Eventually, he becomes an apostle in the church. And not just an apostle in the church, but the leader of the church. And not just the leader in the church, the giver of the very first sermon after Pentecost. And not just that, the deliverer of the gospel for the very first Gentile believer. He initiates the gospel to the Gentile world. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to write 1st and 2nd Peter. What? If you fail Jesus like that, I mean, we'll let you back in the club, but don't expect to do anything significant around here because we will never forget what you did. And we see actually in the grace and mercy of Christ, we see the opposite of that, don't we, friends? We see that there is There is forgiveness, and that this forgiveness is not just sort of a like, okay, I forgive you, but it is true and genuine and complete. Thank you. Somewhere there would be a good point for, yeah, amen, something, I don't know. Or do do all the real sinners come to first and third service at Bethel Church? (laughs) Because if we recognize, and maybe this is part of our issue, Let me just freelance here for a moment. Maybe this is part of our issue, is that we don't recognize how often we actually do fail the Lord. And so to hear that Jesus reinstates the greatest failure back to his place of prominence with real forgiveness may not mean that much if we don't recognize how often we fail the Lord but for sinners who recognize that in spite of God's grace and in spite of being a a new creature in Jesus, that I live my life, as Paul says, what a wretched man I am. And that I do this daily. I don't live up to the things that God calls me to. I live in disobedience to the will of God. And yet, in God's grace and mercy, He loves me. And he forgives me. And there is no failure that I can do that's greater than Peter's, which means that if he can restore Peter, he can restore me. Sinners really get jazzed about that. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now there's some debate about the Greek words in here and all that. I'm not going to get into it because I don't think it really matters and most people don't. There's some different love words and all the rest. The main point here is the reason that Jesus repeats it three times. And let's go back in the story now. Jesus, or Peter's in the courtyard and the little girl comes up to him and says, excuse me, I was wondering, are you one of the disciples? And what does Peter say? No, no, I am not. And then some men are sitting around the fire and they start to whisper and point at him and and Peter starts getting paranoid and they say, wait a second, aren't you one of the disciples? You're Galilean. We can tell by your accent. And Peter goes, I'm not a disciple. No, I'm not. And then one guy comes up to him and says, you look like a guy that cut off the ear of my relative in the, in the, in the, uh, garden. And he goes, no, 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 I wasn't there. It's not me. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three. How many times does Jesus say, do you love me? Three. How many times does Jesus say, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep? Three times. Now, why do you suppose that Jesus would have repeated that? three times was it because he's hard of hearing peter ever since the resurrection i can't hear quite well what did you say again (laughs) did he repeat it because he needed to hear it no this wasn't done for jesus this was done for peter and here we have the grace of god the grace of christ extending to the guy that failed him the worst Repeats it three times. Every one of those failures burned into the memory of Peter. Jesus affirms, affirms, affirms. You are forgiven. And I want you to lead my people again. Follow me. We serve a great savior, don't we? I mean, we just got to look in the story and go, these are qualities, just reasons to love him and to see the way that he reinstates Peter. Now, here's the big point. And I've hinted at this already, but this is what I want you to walk out of here with today. There has never been, and there never will be, in the, all of human history, a greater personal failure of Jesus and a greater complete restoration than Simon Peter. Never! Those circumstances were so unique to the moment. We will never be able to fail him as personally As Peter did. Now, the reason I want you to get this is that I know, because of my own failures, and and I believe it to be true here today, that on the other side of some kind of failure and great maybe disappointment in self-related to my walk with God, we feel and ask questions like this. Can God really forgive me? I mean, really. I know it says he forgives and all the rest, but can God really do that? Or We ask, will it ever be the same again with God? I used to enjoy such joy with Him and such closeness and warmth, but will it ever be like that again? Or can my conscience ever truly be clean again? Can I ever look myself in the mirror and not feel shame and guilt and not have that thing come back to me and to think that God still holds it against me? Or in God's eyes, am I now forever a second-class citizen? Do I wear some kind of a mark on me that says, you know what, forgiven, but not all forgiven? Am I, am I forever relegated to the B team? And I just think that Peter's story here has to be utterly hope-giving to any single one of us here that in our honest assessment recognize that from the perspective of God, we do not measure up to his glory we do not measure up to his moral standard and that we fail him over and over and over again that for any sinner here who sees that and recognizes it to look at peter and to say his failure was so great i I haven't failed him that much but look what jesus does restores him this means that his forgiveness is real his grace is real and that he does not hold his, our sins against us, but rather he washes us white as snow, separates them as far as the east is from the west. That we have the opportunity in our sin to just follow again. And I wonder, does your, is, that, is, that the, is that your understanding of God? Is that your understanding of Jesus? Is that your like theology? Because I'm just putting Peter out there in front of you and say, Hey, look. You ain't done as bad as he did. And look at how Christ forgave him. This is our God, friends. He is a real and forgiving God. One uh, writer says, The fact that Peter was clearly forgiven by Jesus and given new responsibilities amounting to apostleship, despite his total denial of his Lord, can give genuine hope to Christians today who feel that they have denied Jesus and that this is unforgivable. He calls only for our repentance and our love. God can't use me. I did this certain thing or I did this thing for a long time. God can't use me. He can't forgive me. It's so bad. Again, I want you to compare your failure to the failure of Peter. If he can restore Peter, he can restore you. Now, how did this happen with Peter, though? Because you could possibly mistakenly hear a message like, like if I stopped right now and you're like, hey man, that annual meeting's coming up. We got to get out of here. If I stopped right now, you might walk out the door going, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I can fail and then I can be forgiven because frankly, I sort of enjoy some of the failures. Let's go out and fail big time. I want you to notice something about Peter. And I want to show this to you in contrast with another disciple who failed the Lord, and his name was Judas. Was it the same? In a way, yes. In a way, no. Was Judas forgiven and restored? No, he was not. In fact, Judas is in hell today. Now that ought to sober us up a little bit about what it means to be forgiven and reinstated. And if I can draw this contrast between Peter and Judas, notice that they have a lot in common. Both of them disciples, both of them chosen personally by Jesus, both of them spending three years with Jesus, seeing the miracles and hear the teaching and all the rest. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Both of them felt remorse over it. So at that point in the story, they are almost exactly the same. But from that point on, there is a path that led to life and restoration and eternal life, and a path that led to death and ultimately to hell. And we see the difference, I think, sharply. What did Judas do with the remorse that he felt? He threw the money back into the treasury. He left and went and he hung himself and died. He ran away. Peter didn't run away from Christ. He ran to the tomb. He swam to the shore. He sought Christ. His love was restored. Judas' love never restored with Jesus. He felt such despair. Peter followed Jesus again. Judas did not. And right now, if we had a portal into heaven and hell, you would see Peter in heaven and you would see Judas in hell. And friends, this is why our failures are so critical. Not that we all are going to fail the Lord. We all will fail the Lord. It is not the failure itself. It is how we respond to it. And by God's grace, failure is not, doesn't have to be final for us if we turn back to Christ. This is known as repentance. Where I see the failure and in my heart, I don't want to fail again. I don't want to run out the door and go, hey, let's go fail because Jesus forgives. No, a repentant sinner, the last thing he or she wants to do is fail the Lord again. But Judas had none of that. There's no record of Peter. We don't, we're not told that Peter ever said, Jesus, will you forgive me? Although I think that he did or something like that. But we see such, such contrition from Peter, don't we, in the story? Such a change of heart. Such a changed man. So I think with our failures, we have the opportunity to either be Peter or to be Judas. One is a path of life. One is a path of death. And I want to know, I want to ask you today, which is true for you? We see this all the time. There are some people that get involved in some kind of a sin. You can pick it. And for a season, they are obsessed with it. They are in bondage to it. But then somehow God works in their life, and there is a change Not perfect, but there's change, and they try to come back to the Lord. And then there are others who get involved in the same kind of thing, and elders go and meet with them, and pastors counsel them, and we work, and we work, and we work, and they're on the path of Judas. They will not give up the right to self-autonomy, and they continue on the path. Which is true for you? Or maybe I could ask the question, which will be true for you in the failures of this week? or the big failures in your future. These are what define us. And I would like for you to remember Peter, so that you might be hopeful that God can and will forgive, but that we also may be repentful and to recognize that this is not an automatic thing, that we must repent and confess and turn from our sin to receive the grace of God that he freely offers to us And this is why I think Jesus asked him the question, do you love me? Because that really is the issue. That's the issue here today. Do you love him? In fact, in some ways, Jesus speaks through the, the centuries and, and asks us today, do you love me? And the reason this is important is that in true restoration, this comes as we seek to have Christ first in our heart. This is when I know my repentance is complete, when my relationship with Jesus is more important than my blank to me. Let's go back in the scenario I just was talking about. The people that we see that get involved in sin and never return to Christ. And then others that do. What is the difference? It is not moral uh, manipulation. It's, it's not kind of a uh, make it right on the outside. It always is a matter of the heart and it is a matter of returning in my heart to an affection for Christ where he is now priority number 1 in my in my life so that i have to to be restored i have to love christ more than my sin or more than my blank and you can put whatever you want in there it always is a matter of the heart do you love him first do you love him most And gloriously, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so I would encourage you, my dear friend, who may be consumed by a failure of the past or in it right now, confess that sin to God. Ask him to forgive you. And purpose in your heart to restore Christ as the priority love of your life. This is how God's grace is extended to us. And in that extension, there is full restoration if we will turn back to the Lord. Did you get it? I don't know if I explained it very well. There's comfort, but there's also challenge, isn't there? We're not talking about a cheap grace as Bonhoeffer talked about. We're talking about a grace extended through the work of Christ and by his love. All right, final comment on Peter, and then we're going to be done. Let's go ahead in the story. What happened after the shoreline breakfast? Well, Jesus ascends back to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Uh, The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Who preaches the first sermon? Peter! Preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people convert, baptized. The church is formed. Who is key in the early days of the church? The guy that failed Jesus in the courtyard. Peter with healings. Peter with Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. Peter with other important theological leadership decisions in the story. And then all of a sudden, Peter stops because Paul takes over in the story of Acts. But church history gives us little glimpses, and we have to kind of, you know... Some of these are a little ambiguous, but there are little glimpses of what happened in the story of Peter. And this is what we are told, is that Peter eventually makes his way to Rome. And he is under arrest under Emperor Nero. And Nero decides to execute Peter and his wife. And we have one fragment that says that when Peter was uh, martyred, they first crucified his wife in front of him, and he said to her, remember the Lord. And then when it was his turn to be crucified, he begged not to be crucified uh, upright because he, was not, he wasn't worthy of dying the way that his Lord died. He said, please execute me uh, upside down. And they consented and he died by crucifixion upside down as an act of worship to the Lord. I want you to think about that. Because, again, we go back in the story, and what do we have? Peter the Great, Peter the Proud, I'm the man, I'll never fail you, look at me, I'm better than everybody else. And then we have the Courtyard. And from that moment on, he is changed. And he lives up to his name, does he not? Simon Peter, Simon the Rock. He met Jesus And it changed everything. What gives hope to us? That God can do the same in our life. So thank you, Peter. But more than that, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you stand with me, please, for prayer?